Tom Crean, Ernest Shackleton, Tim McCarthy from Kinsale, Frank Worsley from New Zealand and two others made the most extraordinary sea voyage ever made since the time of Captain Bly. And many say that it exceeded what Captain Bly did after the mutiny in the Bounty. icy continent, the last place on earth to be explored. It is the coldest, the driest, the windiest, the loneliest place on earth. Now the Irish connection to the great era of Antarctic exploration, which was at the uh, turn of this century, is uh, very, very strong. For example, this week seven Irishmen will head south to Antarctica in an attempt to reenact what many, many people regard as the single most incredible and courageous rescue ever undertaken in the battle to explore the last place on earth. There were six men involved in the original rescue in 1916. Ironically, three of them were Irish. Tim McCarthy from Kinsale in Cork and uh, two other men, very, very different backgrounds. Tom Crean from Annascal in Kerry, son of a farmer, and Sir Ernest Shackleton from Kildare, son of a doctor, Anglo-Irish family. And they literally saved each other's lives and they also saved the lives of 22 other men. And one of the people going and heading off this week is Paddy Barry. They stood head and shoulders above other Arctic and Antarctic explorers. And they were the stalwarts who carried the rescue, carried through the rescue of their 28 comrades after their endurance ship was lost in the ice. Their ship a well-found expedition ship going to the Antarctic was crushed in the sea ice. They were five months on the ice, 28 men. Men, you could say, without hope. But the competence that Tom Crean bought, brought, this was his third Antarctic trip. He had served before with Captain Scott twice. And Shackleton had such powers of leadership that notwithstanding that they were out there 350 miles from the nearest land on ice in his spot of hospitable, uh, they never lost their optimism and their competence carried them through. Five months later, they were on the edge of the sea ice, 28 of them, with three rowing boats. Into the boats they got and they went for 60 miles and awful conditions and landed on this place called Elephant Island called after elephant seals, not elephant elephant. And there they were for five days. 
this place bleaker than anything you could possibly imagine. Rock Hall multiplied by 10 or 15 in winter gales would be a holiday camp compared with this. Heading south, south again. Turn my back to the wind. Heading south, south again. Yes, south again. Leonard Massey was a member of the expedition with Crean and Shackleton. Here he is, it's a rare recording from 1943, shortly before he died, and he talks about the landing on Elephant Island. Obviously, our first job was to build a house. We piled up some rocks, turned the two small boats upside down on top of them, and packed ice and snow into the cracks. It was a dreadful little hut about 18 feet long by 6 feet wide and 5 feet high. But the 22 of us lived in it all through the Antarctic winter. The floor consisted of large rocks, at first covered with ice and snow. But this was soon melted by the heat from our bodies, so we made a carpet of penguin skins. After a time, these began to decay and added one more to the many aromas of our home. We had no light at first, then we made a little lamp by stewing down some seal blubber and extracting a dirty thick oil from it. This was poured into a sardine tin and with a piece of twisted bandage for a wick, the lamp burned with a tiny smoky flame that only made the darkness seem darker. Of course, one had to resist the awful temptation to creep out at night and drink the oil. I think that few people in the world have been as hungry as we were and have survived. We had no bread or biscuits, and sometimes days and days would go by without seal or penguin appearing on the island. At such times, all our thoughts, dreams and conversations were about food as we lay in our sleeping bags, safe from the 120 miles an hour blizzard outside. And at that time, one's meal consisted of a piece of seal or penguin half the size of your palm, fried in blubber. Serving the meal was quite a ceremony. The food was first divided up into equal portions. Even minute pieces were removed from one portion and added to another until all were satisfied that the rations were equally divided. For drink, we had melted ice. Supplies of tea had finished long ago, so had tobacco. The men smoked hands full of hair from their sleeping bags, bits of seal skin, penguin bones and feathers, in fact, anything that would burn. One man had two pipes, so he cut one up, stewed it down in an old tin with some seaweed, dried the seaweed and even tried to smoke that. If it were a fine day, Wilde told us off to do various jobs, hunting for food or repairing the hut. When resting indoors, we had for reading matter one volume of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, I think it was M to N, which we'd brought all the way from the wreck. In the evening, we often settled down to an argument, and sometimes some crafty person who had privately swatted up some abstruse subject in the Encyclopaedia would cleverly work the conversation round to air his newly acquired knowledge. And on Saturday nights, we had a sing-song. For an orchestra, we had my banjo. Frank Wilde was the chairman. All the others lay in their sleeping bags under the two old boats. was self-rescue. Tierra del Fuego was the nearest land, not much of a place either. 
Downwind was 800 miles of wild Antarctic Ocean and in one of their boats they rigged it up, they put canvas on top of it, it was only a rowing boat but they rigged the sails on it and in this boat Tom Crean, Ernest Shackleton, Tim McCarthy from Kinsale, Frank Worsley from New Zealand and two others made the most extraordinary sea voyage ever made since the time of Captain Bly and many say that it exceeded what Captain Bly did after the mutiny in the Bounty. 17 days in these atrocious conditions they survived, they landed on South Georgia, crossed 30 miles of the most inhospitable mountain and glaciers you've ever known, got to the Norwegians on the other side and went back to rescue every man of the 22 they had left behind. An extraordinary story, but was lost. That story happened during tumultuous times. The world was at war. The, t the very day that they left Elephant Island, the 24th of April, 1916, was Easter Monday in O'Connell Street, or Sackville Street, as it was. So their wonderful story was lost because of the other things that were going on. From Maniscal came Thomas Green, who left his home at Sweet 15 from the Kingdom County that he was bound to stray. Oh, he sailed with Lashley, Wilson Bowers, with patience smoked his pipe for hours in the lower deck, sailed south for Backdoor Bay. Tom Crean left Anascal at 15. Apparently he ran away after he had a row with his dad over a cow straying into a, a field. He shouldn't have strayed into it, believe it or not. But he always wanted to go to sea, apparently. And he ended up in New Zealand in his early 20s, 1901. And he literally got involved in Antarctic uh, expeditions by accident. Robert Falcon, Scott, that's Scott of the Antarctic. Uh, his first expedition was ready to leave port in New Zealand. And one of his crew was accidentally killed. And Tom Crean applied and replaced the man. Growing up in Anaskal, what was your dad called and what, what were you called? My dad was called Tom the Pole and I was Mary the Pole <laughs> and I resented it, I can tell you. I thought it was an awful name, I didn't understand the meaning. Did you not know they were... No, not for years after, Joe. Describe this, this hero that Paddy Barry talks about so eloquently. To us he was only our father. He wasn't a hero to us. He was. A, we understood nothing about it anyhow because we were too young. And as I told you before, had we lived, had my father lived another decade, we would have questioned him, and we would have known something about him. But it was really after my dad died that we realised what a famous man he was. When people were coming to us and when we read the papers after his death. It was only then we realised the importance of my dad, because he never told us he didn't want it. He was just happy at home. Tom DePaul. Oh, he reached South Georgia in an open boat For 16 days bailed to stay afloat Against the savage sea he reached at Torrid Isle 
Near King Hawken Bay, they found Cape Camp to shelter from the cold and damp after sailing across the sea 800 miles. Four other men were required, and although I thought of leaving Crean as a right-hand man for Wilde, he begged so hard to come that after consulting Wilde, I promised to take him. The crew seemed a strong one, and as I looked at the men, I felt confidence increasing. After the decision was made, I walked through the blizzard with Worsley and Wilde to examine the James Caird. The 20-foot boat had never looked big, but when I viewed her in the light of our new undertaking, she seemed in some mysterious way to have shrunk. In the James Caird boat, six men set out for South George's wild domain. To mount an expedition to say those who had remained. Or they rode 800 weary miles across the South Atlantic's way. And one month on in a bitter storm, they reached King Hagen Bay. Shackleton had no alternative but to attempt to reach civilization. They could have, I suppose, stayed on Elephant Island and lived out their lives lost to the world. But he decided that six people should climb into the small 23-foot lifeboat and try and cross the 800 miles to the nearest piece of piece of land, which was in South Georgia. The roughest sea in the world uh, was ahead of them. And he would take uh, five men with him, including Tom Crean and Tim McCarthy. Uh, Jonathan Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton's cousin. Tell us about Ernest Shackleton, this second Irishman we're talking about in these two programmes. Um, Ernest Shackleton was born in County Kildare. Um, Shackleton uh, went into the Merchant Navy and then, purely by chance, through just a connection with a friend, got involved in Scott's first expedition. And... Almost from that date on, 1901, he never went back home. He was totally addicted to the Antarctic. And very, very, what people say now, focused. That if he set his mind on a prize, he never wavered from that. And his whole, the rest of his life, which was a short one. And apparently, he always used to say that one of his old nurses, when he was growing up in Ireland, he lived in Ireland at the age of 10, uh, had told, said to him, that you'll die at the age of 48. And he always used to quote this, apparently. And whether this was drove him, he had huge energy, a very larger-than-life personality. He thought big and talked big and then, unlike many people, then acted big. Very ambitious, uh, very restless character, never sat still, said he couldn't think if he was sitting down. Tremendous charm. He did have this tremendous um, gift of, of the gab, of being able to use a spoken word to deal directly with people. OK, let, let's hear his voice. This is the only known recording of Ernest Shackleton speaking. It's from a 78 record, nearly 90 years old, and he's talking about the first expedition he led to the South Pole. The southern journey started from Cape Royd, on the uh, 28th of October, 1908, and on January the 9th of this year, 1909, the British flag was hoisted in latitude 88.23 south and longitude 162 east. We retraced our steps over traverses through soft snow, encountering blizzards, 
till eventually on the 1st of March of 1909, we arrived at winter quarters, having uh, covered 1,708 miles on the journey. The northern magnetic or the southern magnetic pole was reached on the 16th of January by three men. They were 122 days out and uh, they did a journey of 1,260 miles. Thus the northern magnetic pole and the southern magnetic pole are flying, have the British flag flying over them. And now, like myself, they long to go again. They want to, they feel the wild calling them and the silent weight of the frozen south. Ah, Shackleton, boy, Shackleton, you're the bravest of them all. Ah, Shackleton, boy, Shackleton, when your back's against the wall. Among the frozen ice flows, your legend it began. Always and true, Boss Shackleton, you never lost a man. And he didn't always use words as well. On the first expedition with Scott, on the Discovery, there was a row, uh, a situation Scott couldn't handle. Scott, I think, operated, look, from, from up above, um, dealt with things from the office, if you like, uh, and there was a situation he couldn't handle, so he called in Shackleton. And Shackleton asked one of his seamen to correct his ways, I can't remember what, what, what the misdemeanour was, and the guy just gave cheek back to him, and so Shackleton just belted him, flattened him, <laughs> picked him up and said, you're going to change your ways, and the guy said no, so Shackleton flattened him again, and that was it. He sorted out the problem. And what was the attraction, do you know, or the addiction of Antarctica, of the South Pole? They're famous, I think, to be honest. snow blindness, and I'm only a bit better tonight. We did a good march yesterday, over 15 miles over fair surface, and again today did 15 miles, but the going was softer. The other's eyes are all right. Snow blindness is a particularly unpleasant thing. One begins by seeing double, then the eyes feel full of grit. This makes them water, and eventually one cannot see at all. All yesterday afternoon, though I was wearing goggles, the water kept running out of my eyes, and, owing to the low temperature, it froze on my beard.
most people would know of Robert Falcon Scott, of Scott of the Antarctic, the man who perished at the South Pole. Tell us, tell us a little bit about him, and then we'll go into the, the connections, the strong connection that Ernest Shackleton had to Scott, and Tom Crean also had to him. Well, Captain Scott was, you could say, a product of his environment. He was a competent naval officer, but had no imagination, no wit, and when his back was to the wall, he looked to the rule book to see what might be done, and if the rule book didn't deal with it, there was no solution. But in addition, he was a man with tremendous physical endurance himself. He pulled sledges, he was prepared to do that which he ordered his men to do. And put, put that whole turn of the century uh, campaign, British Empire campaign, in the Antarctic. Put that into a historical context for us, Paddy. Why? This was the British Empire at its zenith, and this was their newly acquired territory as they saw it, and they were taking their rightful place in the sun, and the flag was being carried to this new territory, and these were the men to carry it. And okay, well then elaborate on the stupidity which we know about it. Well, that's Scott, too strong a word given their heroism. Not, not, not stupidity, but lack of ju- lack of judgment, okay. lack of imagination, lack of wit. Just I'll give you one example. If Scott had taken Tom Crean to the South Pole, he wouldn't have died. Tom Crean had saved at that stage not only his own life in many many incidents, but he had saved thirty men up to that date who would otherwise have fallen into the ice, who would have fallen overboard during various gales at sea. Tom Crean saved the life of of Lashley and Evans. Had Scott taken Tom Crean with him, Tom had the strength and and the wit and the endurance to carry them that 14 miles that they didn't make to Wonton Depot. They would have come home to tell the tale, all of them. And he let... Crean went quite close to the pole with Scott. He did. He went. He, you know, he went until Scott. Un, un, until Scott says, you know, I prefer. I prefer you. I wa- I'm ordering you to turn back with Lashley and Evans. Had Scott. T- had Scott taken Crean with him, they would all have got back. And and Scott describes the moment when he told Crean, "You're not coming on the last leg." Crean shed bitter tears, not for himself alone, but for Scott, whom he regarded as a man. To be served, to be to be to be helped, and Crean saw that Scott was making a mistake. Now he didn't realise that it was going to be a fatal mistake. Mm-hmm. But Crean knew that he was str- that he was stronger than any of the others, which he was. Like this, this had been proved many times over, and Scott should have taken Tom Crean, and Tom would have got them all back, no shadow of doubt. And Mary, did did your dad ever talk about Scott of the Antarctic? What did he think of him? He liked him. Most extraordinary thing, he never said a word against him. Never. But he did, I remember that story now that you've said, Paddy, about he he was disappointed he wasn't chosen. But he, he obeyed orders and returned. When Scott picked his man for the pole to go, for Tom Crean's tears fell to the snow. From three degrees, ah, he turned homeward bound. But for Gallon Crean, Evans would have died all alone. He walked for 34 miles when he reached Hut Point near Old McMurdo Sound. Compare, he walked with Shackleton yeah. and he walked with Scott. Mm-hmm. How did he rate both of them? He never condemned Scott, but 
But I think he respected Shackleton more. I do think he did. Brendan, as a grandchild, were you aware of his heroism? Yes, I was. <laughs> Read Tom's own description in a letter of how he found uh, Captain Scott did the, the, in, in, after Scott perished. This is, uh, yeah, this was a letter that um, just came to light two years ago. Um, it was a letter he sent to a Captain Dodds. It was an account of, of, of that very thing. Now, he, he mentioned to Captain Dodds. I'll read it. I was a tent mate with Captain Oates from November 1st, 1911 to December 6th, 1911, where we parted sleeping accommodation, but remained in company until January 10th, 1912. On this state, there not being enough food, Lashley, Lefton Nevins and myself had to turn back to allow the others more supplies. January 10th was the last time I saw Captain Oates, on which date I left his party 130 miles from the South Pole. Captain Scott, Captain Oates, Dr Wilson, Lefton Bowers and Petty Officer Evans went down from now and all reached the South Pole on January 23rd, 1912. On their return journey, however, owing to lack of food, the party gradually dwindled. 310 miles from home, Evans went. 174 Captain Oates died on March 17, 1912, while Captain Scott, Dr Wilson and Lefton Bowers perished 150 miles from home on 29th of March 1912. They perished owing entirely to lack of food, which was mainly caused through stress of weather, holding them back many days in short rations. And when the party should have marched nine miles a day from food depot to food depot, they were only able to do six and gradually dwindled to even less, thus not reaching the depots in question. It has actually proved that Scott, Wilson and Bowers lived for nine days on two days' rations. I was one of the search party to look for their last resting place and was first of the search party to see it some, to see it some 14 miles from Munton Camp on November 15, 1912. I noticed what appeared to be a tent because of the flagstaff about 400 yards to my right. When I entered, I found Wilson and Bowers were tied up in their bags, but poor Scott was not proving that he had died last and had been able to fasten up the bags of the others. They had all died as proper English gentlemen, although they were given the necessary medicine with which to take their own lives if they so desired. I have now fulfilled three expeditions, but look forward to a fourth. First with Captain Scott, 1900-1904, again with Captain Scott, 1910-1913, and with Sir Ernest Shackleton, 1914-1916, signed Tom Crean. The sudden lights, they burn brightly now From Port Chalmers to New Zealand far And the sudden cross makes the heavens bow With brave Tom Cream, South Polar Star why he has been so forgotten. Ernest Shackleton kept a diary of his journey, some of which you have been hearing. A short biography of Tom Cream was written by a school teacher in upstate New York in the USA, who, like many of us, 
first came across Tom Queen when she passed the South Pole in uh, down in Anaskal, and I asked her about Tom Queen. There were several instances where other people had gotten themselves into a jam, mm-hmm. and it seemed that Tom never created the situation, but he was able to get them out of it. Uh, one was in Scott's second expedition when they were making their way back to camp uh, with Bowers and Cherry Garrard, and they ended up stuck on the ice, which broke up. And they had the ponies with them. They didn't want to leave the ponies, and they sent Crean, jumping from ice flow to ice flow, as he said it, dodging the killer whales all the while, um, to get help. Uh, they saved the men and many of the stores, but unfortunately they lost the ponies in that one. Um, another time... Certainly when uh, he and Lieutenant Evans and Seaman William Lashley were coming back from their close encounter with the South Pole, they didn't quite get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scott had sent them back. He sent back three people instead of four, which put a great strain on the three that were going back. And the chances are they would not have made it without Crean. Uh, Evans became very ill with scurvy, and they managed to get to within about 35 miles of the base camp, and then Crean had to go on alone. He had about a 30-mile journey on foot with very little food, and he managed to get there, told them what the problem was, and took them back to the tent. Shackleton and Crean seemed to share a special bond um, when they were on their boat journey in the James Caird, Captain Worsley gave a description of uh, how when Crean and and Shackleton would finally crawl into their wet sleeping bags, they had to be exhausted, totally exhausted. But they would get in there, and uh, Worsley said, as the two watchmates turned in, a kind of wordless rumbling, muttering, growling noise could be heard issuing from the dark and gloomy lair. At times they were so full of quaint conceits, and Crean's remarks were so Irish that I ran risk of explosion by suppressed laughter, and they would joke back and forth with one another. Another time, um, when they had gotten to South Georgia, mm-hmm. Crean had, been, had neglected to put on his goggles while he was cooking and apparently damaged his eyes. And um, Worsley again described how Crean would wake them up with uh, groaning from the pain in his eyes. And he said, Sir Ernest lost more sleep than we did as he attended to Crean. That sounded very quaint to hear Crean demurring like a fractious child, and Sir Ernest like a worried parent reproving him until he got him off to sleep. I think this shows a special relationship between the two men. Oh, they found the whaling station through South George's rugged back. Across uncharted wilderness where no whalers dared to track. Oh, they heard the welcome whistle of the whalers' morning call. Ah, the boss had beaten all the odds when his chances were so small. Within half an hour, reached the beach with Crean and some of the Chilean sailors. 
I saw a little figure on the surf-beaten rock and recognized Wilde. As I came nearer, I called out, Are you all well? And he answered, We are all well, boss. And then I heard three cheers. As I drew close to the rock, I flung packets of cigarettes ashore. They fell on them like hungry tigers. For well I knew that for months tobacco had been dreamed and talked about. Some of the hands were in a rather bad way, but while it kept hopes alive in their hearts. There was no time then to exchange news or congratulations. A heavy sea was running, and a change of wind might bring the ice back at any time. I hurried the party aboard with all possible speed. Everybody was aboard within an hour, and we steamed north at the Elcho's best speed. The ice was still open, and nothing worse than an expanse of stormy ocean separated us from the South American coast. which was Arab Midsummer, which is in the middle of June. Mm. And they had pantomimes, and they had some alcohol as well, didn't they, and treats? And uh, they had some alcohol, yes, mm -hmm. but never very much. Never very much. Um, the main thing was food, double yeah. helpings of food. That was the treat. That was their real treat. Yeah. Christmas Day on the Nimrod expedition, I think. I mean, they had brandy, plum pudding, and a double helping of hoosh which is this pemmican mixed in a sort of <laughs> yeah. stew with hard biscuit. and I mean, pemmican is yeah. the dried fat and, uh, and meat. So that was their treat. I mean, they did have entertainment, like sort of small pantomimes and things. But Anna Shacklin was quite careful about that. I mean, uh, careful about the alcohol. Yeah, he went on with a little bit. Um, but the pantomimes, he was always very cagey. I mean, part of a pantomime from school days, I suppose, some of them would have been familiar with it, was, you know, dressing up as women. Sure, sure. And he didn't encourage that because it distracted them. No, it, it made them think of other things away from what their real minds should have been on. And finally, <coughs> Jonathan, um, your cousin Ernest Shackleton is enduring memory. Probably the greatest leader in Antarctic exploration who generated the most respect from those people who went with him on all his expedition. Mm-hmm. Very courageous. Always the first in trouble, if there's trouble, and always ready to help anybody under any circumstances. And he would never ask anybody else to do what he couldn't do himself. So he set a superb example to others, and that's why they respected him so much and why they called him the boss. Ah, Shackleton, boss Shackleton, you're the bravest of them all. Ah, Shackleton, boss Shackleton, when your back's against the wall Among the frozen ice floes, your legend it began Always oh, and true, boss Shackleton, you never lost a man <laughs> 